0: It is the cuteness parade as they all leave, kind of like that. Um, There was a book uh, that was originally published in 1952 called People of the Deer. And it it chronicles this Inuit group of people living in kind of the northern territory of Canada. And they were people that largely lived uh, off of the existence of this caribou, uh, but because of migration patterns and some economic issues, this, this widely spread, very prosperous group of people dwindled down to the point of extinction. And so this book called People of the Deer was written, and it chronicles their story. It was re-released uh, in 1975, and... Uh, uh, um, Uh, Farley Mowat was the the author. And um, one of the things that it talks about is that in this tribe, there was... um There was virtually no crime, and when I say tribe, it's not a very small group. I mean, this was a very large community of people, but they had no problem with crime, and you think, well, that's because they all know each other. Not necessarily. People who know each other steal from, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Uh, The the human condition affects all people, all places, and all time. Uh, But one of the things that this author, as he started to immerse himself in this Inuit community and just learn about them was that they also had no jails. There was no prisons of any kind, but there was a group of elders. And when there was an offense committed, a crime committed, they would bring them before the elders. And the punishment came always at the expense of community. That is that if you had done something to wrong, it wasn't a beatdown, it wasn't a stockade, it was you had to live for some length of time in isolation. Now, as this guy Farley Mowat was trying to do all the research and he was asking um, you know, the oldest people within the community and, and the elders saying, has there ever been a case where someone's been fully excommunicated Uh, from this community. And only one elder could think of in in his time that there was only one case of complete excommunication. Isn't that interesting that the level that you have of offenses committed and crimes committed are attached to the need for and the nature of being in intentional relationship together. See, I believe we're created for that kind of relationship. It kind of illustrates the importance of it, so much so that if you threaten that I might not have that, it might be a game changer for me. It might totally change my, my the choice that I might otherwise make. I think this illustrates something really important for all of us, and that is our need for community. Now. Uh, what was also interesting that the identity was built around a certain set of values, and there was evidence. Uh, Also, that you could join the community. People from the outside were given access to become full-fledged members of this Inuit community as well. So it wasn't like they just kept to their own kind. There would be people living out in the bush who liked their way of life that would be sort of adopted or grafted in to the community. But the values remained. Last week, we talked about this building project that Nehemiah has undertook. Nehemiah was living some thousand miles away with the people of God in exile. And so um, serving under this Babylonian king, he was the cupbearer. He had a very trusted position, even though he wasn't a wealthy man, he had an influential role that is before the king would taste or uh, any of his food or drink, It was his job to see if he was gonna be poisoned or not. So sitting in this lap of luxury, he hears report that Jerusalem is in ruins. And so he feels like this is his calling because it's living in, it's the people of God living in a vulnerable condition, living in this exiled state which I contend is a great picture for the people of God today. And one of the things I tried to illustrate last week was that in chapter two, we have this picture of him coming back to build walls and gates because both are needed for a community to flourish. Walls represent the kind of identity, the kind of values that define or give boundary to what is supposed to set the people apart. And the people of God that is the church are always supposed to be set apart, unique and distinct to be a light to the rest of the world. But what we have is a need for gates. So sometimes we get a lot of churches, a lot of Christian communities that build really big walls almost to keep the outside world outside. And yet there's this need for gates. That is, they swing wide open because everyone needs accessibility. Everyone can find room at the table. But if you're a church that's all about gates at the expense of walls, it's sort of stand for nothing, fall for anything. It sounds like a country song in there or something like that. But what I'm saying is both are needed. It's a both and. And there's this tendency to want to build up the walls with what we believe is true and then try and find people who think exactly the same way we do. And you don't even have to be in the church. To do that it's all these self-referential communities who believe that their political agenda or their ideology and once is, is right and true and good and I'm saying you know what there's a way for the people of God to be defined but also to remain accessible and from the beginning God wanted to have a unique group of people that had an identity so set apart a kind of value system and we need walls but we also need gates And by the way, all of us get to play the role of greeters. All of us play the role of bringers. Because we, individuals that make up the body, get to be responsible for hosting people into what I think is a unique calling that is the community of faith. And so I want to spend a little time tonight looking at the end of of chapter 2. Um, and just talk about a couple of things that come up. One of the things that as, um, Nehemiah comes to, as he now ret- comes a thousand miles and he starts to survey the land and he's heard that this, that this city that defined his people was in ruins, he starts to walk around, um, without notice. He does it at night, um, and he assesses the land, he assesses the damage. Now the walls have been in rubble for a hundred years when when Jerusalem was defeated, but there had been people that had resettled there for 25 years and they had just come to accept the rubble as the way it was, living their subsistence living amidst the ruins. And I, I feel like, and again, Throughout all of scripture, God is trying to restore and repair our broken creation, our broken lives, our broken communities, our broken families, our broken self-image. God has been restoring and repairing that from Genesis 3, really, when sin entered the equation. So when we read this historical account of a rebuilding, understand that it's both literal and very metaphorical very personal to what God wants to restore and repair in my life in our community in your home and in our city so he walks the city and he assesses the land and so when we want to talk about God's calling for any one of us we understand that if God's about restoration part of whatever I do regardless of my day job is about the restoration of the world that God actually intended did the world, did, did the world that God create actually intend for there to be missing chromosome 21 and someone wake up with Down syndrome? or No, wake up, be born with Down syndrome. Did, did God actually intend a world where, where there's natural disasters? I don't think so. Did God intend a world where there's a, a predisposition for, um, for obesity or, 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 or for alcoholism? No. I think these are all effects of a fallen and broken humanity. So when we want to shake our fist and blame God for a sniper on a balcony in a country music concert, why would God allow this to happen? Where was God when this happened? Broken hearted, weeping, angry and in disgust in the midst of the crowd, on the balcony with the shooter. He was there because this was not the world that he intended It's the world that God created. And ever since sin entered the equation, he's been trying to repair and restore. And he always wanted to have a group of people separate and distinct that would say, will you care about justice? Will you care and be the people of mercy? Will you walk humbly in my sight? Let me use you to do this work. We need walls, but we need gates. And so he starts to assess the land. And one of the hardest things for us to do is to make an assessment. Maybe because we're hyper insecure, maybe because we feel inadequate, whatever the case might be, I think the need for us to make assessment is both hard and needed and good. And we need to be committed to being honest about where we need help and next steps. And I think we often hold this perception of ourselves that's really well-intentioned, but not necessarily honest about how we're doing personally or how we're doing collectively. Every church that you talk to will say that they are a friendly church, mostly because they all know each other. But if you're a new person visiting a church that's been together for years, I promise you, you won't feel like it's that friendly because you don't have the history with them. And one of my great fears about Mission Hills growing older is that we'll grow closer and forget what it's like to be new. And so there is this need for assessment, need about our own level of woundedness, the condition of our marriage, uh, our our own kind of flirting with what might or might not be addiction. Maybe it's our control tendencies and our, you know, slave, being enslaved to control and perfectionism. Uh, Maybe we live with great levels of fear. I think all of these things needs a healthy and proper assessment if we're to be free and, and be part of the people of God. This doctor once told me, he goes, um, as we're kind of going through the verbal exam before he actually does the the feeling exam, the blood work exam, the the tactile exam. But he says, um, just because nothing hurts doesn't mean anything's wrong. You know, we've all heard the story of someone who felt great and then they went and realized there's a mass growing inside of them. I felt fine. Right. And and I think that's a really good word for us when we try and take up just because things aren't bad in your life doesn't mean we don't need to hunger and thirst after God. But crisis, tragedy, profound need has a way of motivating us to God. But just because nothing bad is occurring in your life doesn't mean we should just kind of go on cruise control i think there's this calling towards restoration i think there's this invitation we have towards intimacy with god that we might be missing Um, and what one of the things that i came to the conclusion was is after 20 years of working in very large and established churches I realized that the church wasn't or isn't broken. I just felt like it was entirely limited. And the church, the way we set up church is often like an on-ramp for a lot of people to access, maybe because they've been gone from church or maybe they just had a newborn or, or maybe crisis happened, maybe someone just died. That's, those are typically the times that people reconnect with their faith or, or with a church experience. But one of the things that happens is that if you sit there week after week, it doesn't always have the transformational experience that you long for. And so I began to pray about, I began to dream about, I began to pursue all these other avenues until I came to, we need to develop a community of faith that might feel a little bit more like a gym workout, a little less comfortable, a little less easy to show up, but certainly less easy to slip out the back door. We need a community of faith that promotes a way to be a self-feeder, don't just wait to come back to me to give you some like spiritual food. There needs to be a practice of faith that you can do in your home, in your life, whether we're gathered or whether we're apart. And so I began dreaming about and praying about this kind of faith community that could be Mission Hills Church, that we could practice things like generosity and hospitality and compassion and gratitude and renewal and community uh, in very intentional ways. And we could look at this nature of apprenticing or disciple making as part of each of our callings to impart a living faith to another. Friends, I didn't want to start something that just created another passive faith I wanted it to be a living faith that we could all embody and embrace so that we could be a part of the rebuilding, the restoration work that God has been trying to do from the beginning. And so when he went around, the locals had accepted the conditions as just the way it is. And if you read kind of the second half of chapter 2, 11 through 18, he just goes by each marker around the city. And in the back of your Bibles, you might find a kind of a zeroed in 5,000 foot view of the Jerusalem walls. And this would, some of this chapter would make sense to you. I'll let you look at that a little bit more on your own. But essentially what the people who had returned, who were living in the ruins, for 25 years, they needed, they needed a new set of eyes. They needed a fresh perspective. They would go, oh, <laughs> I've, I've gotten so used to the rubble that it's just, I'm used to stepping over it. I joke because um, this church um, is a little cluttery. This church has like five congregations meeting, and every corner reflects a different congregation that meets here. And I'm like, did they forget what it's like to be new? When I walk in and I'm like, oh my gosh, eyesore, eyesore. eyesore. And I, and I want to just do a thorough cleaning of the place. Uh, and I'm like, this is what happens, is that all of a sudden you walk in as the new person, you're like, and now I've been coming here for a year and a half, and I was like, oh, I'm kind of getting used to the, the junk that's littering the walls and some bulletin board that hasn't been updated since 1978 or something like that. And you're like, all right. Uh, but the same thing was true back then. They had just gotten so used to, well, that's just the way things are. It's just what you do. You just step over the the rubble. I mean, yeah, it was tragic that it, but I've got to go. Um, I've got to go tend to the goats. I, I've got to go milk the cows. I, 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 and 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 so Nehemiah shows up. He makes this assessment, and they needed. And I think we often make peace with our own inadequacies and our and our own dysfunction. But the rubble. In our life just like then shouldn't be normal so we need assessment chapter three and if you've ever read chapter three it might be one of the most boring chapters (laughs) so let me just kind of give you a highlight version of why it's so significant is chapter three unveils nehemiah's strategy and it's a strategy so simple that it might work he has this huge undertaking and his only experience is really as a cupbearer to the king. All he's ever known is exile and the king's court, right? So he's not necessarily gonna be this refined, you know, general contractor or, or someone who could, but he comes up with a strategy and he starts to unfold how this will look and, the, uh, uh, and he gives everyone kind of ownership in this process of the rebuilding work. Um, and what he's saying is, everyone needs ownership. And ownership is simply what I would describe as the power of we. See, your portfolio might be significant or it might be lacking, but the power of we makes it a whole lot more interesting. Your skill set might be neat, your skill set might be emerging. But the power of we makes it a lot more compelling. Your network, your neighbors, your vision for seeing needs and opportunity might be unique to you. But the power of we makes it a whole lot more extraordinary and that's what he starts to unpack here and I think we all have a role to play and certainly that project then and the great commission now of going into all the world is too much for one person just like the church is too much for one person what he's saying is everyone finding their role now Chapter 3 links the entire book together uh, of the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah implements this strategy, right? And so let me just give you a snapshot. This is just Nehemiah 3, 23 through um, about 31. And it, again, it reads almost like a cookbook. It's 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 a step above reading maybe um a phone book, uh, but uh you just kind of go then to this, then then to this, and then to this, and you're like, that's not that interesting, but I want to highlight a couple of phrases. About 18 times in chapter three alone, the phrase next to them or um, uh, next to him comes up again and again. So what I'm saying here is that when we start out to be involved in the work of God, the, the restoration of God, proximity matters. Who you live near, who's a part of your daily life, who's who's current with what you're going through matters in the restoration work. Whether they're here tonight or not, that matters. Uh, The second thing that we see owning the work of restoration is that they they stood shoulder to shoulder. So let me just read a couple of things. And you'll start to see how this plays out. Each of the family members have this vested interest, and they were motivated by their personal security uh, because they started building the wall where? Near their home. Wait, so I don't want the weak spot in the wall to be at my front door. (laughs) So, So he had this genius strategy to rebuild the wall to get everyone involved starting With where the wall was broken nearest you. That seems like a good strategy. Watch this. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, the son of Masiah, the son of Ananiah, in case there was confusion, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binelson uh, uh, of Hernadad repaired another uh, section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. Oh yeah, the corner. And Patel, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper place near the court of the guard. This is where I wish I had some Australian accent just to make this sound a little bit more interesting. But read on with me. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section and from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Can you see a theme here? Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, son of Shemaliah, uh, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. Well, next to him, Meshallam, Son of Barchariah made repairs opposite his living quarters. I could go on, but you see and get my point. For us to have ownership of God's restoration work, proximity matters. It's the power of we. They stood shoulder to shoulder, and they also recognized their own vulnerability. Shoot, if that side of the city gets constructed and built up and fortified, and ours is the the weak link, they're all gonna funnel through here and we're done for. Let's own it, let's own it. See, there's a reason why we don't have Tribe Good Neighbor Funds. We don't have North Good Neighbor Fund and South Good Neighbor Fund and Central Good Neighbor Fund. We have Mission Hills Good Neighbor Fund so that collectively we can draw on resources. There's something about investing where you live. What are the stories coming out of your local schools that Mission Hills could be a response to? What are the needs and opportunities on your block that, that maybe if you just got um, an email sent out, a few text messages, that, that Mission Hills could respond like a militia, like a Minutemen army, or maybe a better word is a flash mob who just shows up out of nowhere and in this choreographed sequence begins to bring a kind of hopefulness, a kind of restoration, a kind of expression of mercy, or just a kind of encouragement. Here's the thing. I keep, um, I had lunch this week with Jonathan and Grace and I'm just trying to build rapport with them and try and figure out their needs as well as the community's needs. You know what Jonathan said to me because we're debriefing. We we've been together for a number of months, and and um, I said Jonathan, I want your people to be a part of what we're doing because you know, as I started to ask him what his calling was, he says I've always been uh, uh, once. I came through college. I knew God had called me to ministry. He's working at HEB now, but he feels called to be a pastor. I was like, well, I want to be a part of that calling. Um, I said, what do you see it looking like here in Austin? And he says, I would like to start a church in Austin that speaks English and Burmese, but not just Burmese, but it would be many cultures, like multicultural I'm like, man, I'm about that. I'm all into that. Could you join us? I was like, you only hang out with people like on food stamps. You need to hang out with educated people and affluent people. You need to learn our culture, develop your language. Come be a part of us and bring some people with you so that we can launch you out in a couple years. What I thought was funny is this. We've never made plans to do a new work because we never had a budget. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) When he was sent out from his church in Burma, his uncle's church, I said, did they send you out with any support? He says, what is support? I said, you know, did they support you, give you some money? He says, well, they gave me a bicycle. I was like, awesome. Uh, We'd like to do more than that. Uh, Maybe get you some real estate and figure out a place for you to meet, negotiate a lease, you know, give you a stipend. We'll do something. I was like, but could you come and be a part of the work here and and build friendship and, and be a part of our community? And, and bring some people. He says, it's hard because some of the people just don't, they come and their English is so poor that it's just easier to be around their own kind. Well, that sounds familiar to me. It's just easier to be around my own people. And he says, and some people aren't really motivated to learn English because they can get by with what they've got just in the community. He says, every day my community calls me and asking about the mail that they received. Is this a bill? Do I owe money? Do I need to show up somewhere? They can't even read their own mail. They just have Jonathan on speed dial. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want that daily call. Uh, I don't even like to read my own mail, let alone discern someone else's. But he has this calling on his life. And I'm like, oh my goodness. We want you to join us so that we can help send you out. We want to be a part of building God's church and and, and expanding these walls in ever and increasing ways. And the way we can do it is just standing shoulder to shoulder. And what was interesting is that, uh, and so I'm working because I live in Westlake and he lives on East Riverside. People in my neighborhood don't have his kind of needs. And so I go out of my way to learn the needs and work on my own need for proximity to him. But when we're standing, uh, when he says, I said, what are your people saying? What kind of needs do they have? And he said, you have to understand. um, First of all, I asked him about, what is it? How are you disciplined? How do you raise your kids? how does punishment look like? Well, we give them a talking to. I was like, yeah, but... And he, and he started to describe what it was like in their schools. And he says, on Sunday nights, we used to get so afraid of going to school because of corporal punishment. The bamboo rod that wasn't more than, um, you know, an inch, you know, kind of what, what we now know is the rule of thumb. That's what they would be beat by, by their teachers. And so he had this fear. And he says, but in, in, in Myanmar... It's military rule. You have no rights. So you make no requests because you have no expectation that you have a right. So here's all of these people that have come here that don't want to make their requests known. They have a whole culture that doesn't know how to really express a need, though they have one. And so they keep their needs sort of among themselves and to themselves. I was like, well, Okay, but could we become sort of trusted friends? Could we be like an extended family where needs are made known? Because guess what? I have a need to have my heart resensitized because what I need and what you need are really different. And I would say both needs are valid. Mine just aren't as sort of basic, you know, if you wanna just work your way up and down Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm thinking this is part of God's restoration work. And I keep telling, him, and he always has this cocked look like he didn't understand my English, but he doesn't understand what I'm saying. And I was like, you don't understand. I need you and grace as much as you might benefit from our friendship. I was like, you didn't understand what I just said. I was like, no, you don't understand. God has brought you into my life for a reason. And I didn't even know that I needed to pray for you. And it gives me this cocked look again, like what are you talking about? I was like, it's all good. I'm just thankful for you, okay? Friends, each of us has a role to play in the restoration of God's kingdom. And it's not just us as a corporate church, it's us individually seeing ourselves as ministers of restoration and of reconciliation. I'm reminded of the story about the man who comes walking by a construction site. And and it just sounds like it could unfold in this town because there's so much construction going on. But the guy asks a simple laborer, what are you doing? He says, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm digging a ditch as he's kind of working on some, you know, foundation work. And so he walks and he finds another construction worker. He's like, man, what are you doing? He says, laying brick. (laughs) That's it. Building this wall, brick at a time. He finds a third guy He says, hey, can I, can I ask what you're doing? And he says, man, I'm building a cathedral. And I wonder if we each could have a better perspective than, oh, I'm helping in children's tonight. Oh, I'm greeting some people at the door. Oh, I'm inviting people. I'm just, you know, going to a barbecue event. No, no, no. What you and I do and our friends are building this cathedral of faith of heaven on earth, where we're able to remind people that even though you feel lonely, you're not alone. Even though you have needs, they're not insurmountable. Even though you feel beat up, even though you're carrying around unforgiveness, even though you're still walking with a limp from what happened in your last marriage or in your childhood, you Are not alone and God brings us right where we're at and wants to make us a part of what he's doing in restoring and repairing a good work in a good creation we are building a cathedral you are building a cathedral let's pray together oh father I thank you for your living word I thank you for um, how it comes alive not just literally and this wall starts to come together But their story is our story. What happened then and there is happening here and now. And that is a work that you have seated in us long before we ever said hello to one another. I pray for a living faith to germinate, to grow, to take on legs and full expression. I pray that we would have a living faith that would be exemplified to children, to coworkers, to neighbors, people who are living in rubble with the condition of their finances, with the condition of their marriage, with the condition of their hearts. And we could be vessels of renewal and hope, compassion. I pray that you would give us eyes to see that which you see, ears to hear that which you hear. May our hearts break for all the right reasons, but may our hearts break for what breaks yours. I pray that regardless of our day job, you would help us see how we can participate in your restoration work. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen.